Joseph Colombo, a mid-ranking mafioso in one of New York's five families. But in 1964, he was determined to supercharge his career. You had to be trusted, and trusted with the highest crime possible, and that's murder. You would not even be considered for capital unless you murdered somebody on orders from the boss. Instead of following orders to kill the most fearsome mobster in town, Colombo decided to break one of the mob's most important rules. When you get accepted into the family, uh, when you take that oath, that burning of the paper in the palm of your hand, you swear allegiance to that family and only that family. Nothing, nothing will come before your family, your mafia, and everything else takes second place to it. That's the purpose of taking the oath. Sometimes if you want to advance, you have to make bold moves. Colombo's growing wealth attracted the attention of the police and the FBI, so Colombo devised a radical solution. It would be the beginning of his downfall. It's hard to know precisely what was going on in Colombo's mind, and of course, we're never going to find out. Um, but this was a time of civil rights uh, throughout the United States. Great strides being made by people who are generally oppressed based on color, ethnicity, um, where they came from. And so Colombo, I think, saw this as an opportunity to get back at the FBI. This is the story of a man who had made mafia history and who achieved the unthinkable. This is Mafia. Across the East River from Manhattan lies the borough of Brooklyn. This was the hunting ground of 40-year-old mobster Joseph Colombo. As a member of New York's Profaci crime family, Colombo was one of the family's top hatchet men, eventually becoming a capo. In 1964, Colombo was summoned to an important meeting. His boss, Joe Magliaco, had a mission for him. It was a hit and a particularly dangerous one. For Joe Colombo, this was nothing new. He had already killed people, about 11 murders to date. Rubbing people out was what capos did. Joseph Wendling was an NYPD detective focused on the five mafia families that ruled the city's underworld. You would never advance to capo without, without killing. It's like anything, a capo, it's not going to make you or move you up unless, uh, one, you've killed on his orders. And uh, with that, uh, you come under his protection. Now, you only have respect by the best protection you can, you can give out there. And, uh, and your loyalty with your men, it's, it's, it's forming a, a military organization. And they look to you for that leadership. And you have to be a good leader. If you show weakness, any kind of weakness, uh, your little guys will try and take over your job. Thomas Repetto is the author of American Mafia and Bringing Down the Mob. It means you're a full-fledged member of an organized crime family, and you have both the duties and the privileges that accrue to that position. Uh, you are enabled to make some money. Uh, you are protected from the law by the family as much as they can, but you also have the duty to strictly obey orders. If they tell you to kill somebody, you go out and kill somebody. 
and you don't resign except feet first. Until this moment, Colombo was nothing special within mafia circles, just one killer amongst many. Typical kind of uh, hoodlum, uh, nothing outstanding about him that, that I know of. But that was about to change forever. The target this time was none other than Carlo Gambino, New York's most powerful leader. Gambino was generally regarded as the, the most powerful boss in the city. He wasn't what they call boss of bosses. They never really had that here in New York or anywhere else. But his, his was considered the, uh, the premier family, although there were people who would claim that title for the Genovese family, who kept a lower profile. Carlo Gambino had built his family into New York's toughest clan. Colombo knew that a hit on any Gambino would be a suicide mission, let alone Carlo himself. Carlo Gambino was the boss. He could take on three out of the five families at one time. That's how big his organization was. And he had some of the best, the best killers. He had the largest recruited soldiers. I think the FBI put uh, almost 1,700 men were made in the United States as made men. Because it was one gunman going up against 100 gunmen. If he could put up 10 gunmen, Carl could put up 500 guns on it. So try and figure it out. I mean, you, you just don't get close to, to Carlo Gambino. He had an army around him. Uh, his home out in Massapeka was in a cul-de-sac. He also owned two houses on both sides of it, and they were considered gun clubs. And everybody that had a gun there was legal. There was, there was no getting close to Carlo, and if he even suspected you, I mean, you just didn't go up to his door and knock on the door and ask to speak to Carlo. It had to be go to his underboss or his consigliere, and that just wouldn't happen. Not only was Gambino's family more powerful, it was against the Mafia code to kill a made man without permission. If you killed Carlo Gambino, that was the kiss of death. You, you, you would never survive. Colombo had spent years building his reputation as a feared and respected mafioso. But now, to keep his Mafia family honor, Colombo had to execute the head of a family. But Colombo had other plans. Rather than kill Carlo Gambino, Colombo decided to tip him off, boldly breaking one of the mob's most important rules. Every Mafia family relies on unwavering loyalty from its members. This is one of the so-called Ten Commandments. Your family comes first. Always. Colombo gambled everything and openly rejected the Mafia oath. Instead, he organized a meeting with Gambino. Gambino was grateful. Colombo's boss was summoned to a trial by the commission. Upon admission, Gambino ordered Joe Magliaco to retire. Then as a reward for Colombo's bold move, he was given Magliaco's old job. He was promoted to head of a family, which was then renamed in his honor. The Profaci family became the Colombo family. Very bold. Very bold, but it worked out. Sometimes if you want to advance, you have to make bold moves. I would think his own ambitions, not so much to save his skin, but to further his own ambitions. He wouldn't be the first person who 
stabbed his boss in the back so that he could get a boss's job. Colombo had made mafia history. He became the youngest godfather in a generation. And Colombo's new position came with real benefits. He could live off the proceeds of crime, paid to him by his criminal family members. If you're the godfather, you're the boss of the family, and depending upon the size of that family, uh, all your capos have to be bringing an envelope up to you. If you were a capo and you were in charge of uh, construction, everybody had to kick money to you, or you would shut down the job. If you were in charge of uh, uh, gambling and loan sharking, they all got a percentage of how much money you had out there on the street. And I don't have to tell you what narcotics was made. Colombo eagerly took over the best money-making operations, and the cash rolled in. They know how to make money out of just about anything. They get a piece out of it. I think it's, 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 they get 10 cents on every dollar for the trucking industry. And now you can figure they were into uh, movies, shows, garment industry, gambling, prostitution. They, they, they run it all. Even in the construction industry, it's no myth. Uh, I'll give you some one sad thing. The mafia controls the, uh, the garbage industry and the waste disposal of blood that has now expired. Well, they didn't figure about throwing the blood out, especially when they got orders to take all the blood out after it was discovered HIV contaminated or not been tested. So what do you think the mafia wanted to do? They repackage it. What did they do? They said, send it to France. They had it shipped to France. So they know how to make money, even out of waste. Colombo and his men didn't just make money from the garbage, but also from loan sharking to gamblers to anyone who needed cash fast. Loan sharking charged borrowers huge rates of weekly interest, known as the VIG. Basically, there are many people out there that need money, and banks would not, not that readily give them the money because they had no financial backing by themselves. Organized crime would come in. And not often those banks would go behind and give him the money. Organized crime would, and they would give him that money. Of course, he would pay an exuberant, uh, I guess, interest on the money, almost uh, 25 to 26 percent. And basically, that's what they did. And they just expanded that. They expanded it into a man that wanted to expand his business, and he couldn't get money. They would loan them the money, and that's basically how they started the loan shocking business. If missing payments persisted, you could expect a beating, or worse. The loan shark book of any mafia operator could run into hundreds of thousands of dollars of weekly income. It was an easy way to make cash on the street. Colombo also made money from hijacking trucks and cargo and selling the stolen goods. In addition, the Colombo family was known for extortion, protection rackets, and the infamous mafia-run union scams. Let's say they decided to move into uh, jukeboxes, uh, linen that the restaurants use, uh, pinball machines. That's all. All of it is controlled by organized crime. And it is all divided into sections. If you have a linen route, only your route can be hired to clean all the linen for that restaurant or hotel. If you have a garbage route, it was divided into areas. Only your area, a garbage company, could not move into. 
and they controlled the whole area. And this went for jukeboxes. It went for um, slot machines, illegal slot machines. This was with all the rackets, everything that they supplied. Uh, everything a business might need to run was supplied and the, and the mafia got a cut of. That's therefore, that was the rackets. Unions managed everything from construction to garbage. The mafia would take over the unions by stripping pension funds and setting up trade monopolies that would only benefit the mafia. Former NYPD detective Bill Clark. Anytime there's a big pool of money around, somebody's going to try to get into it. And the unions had all this money, and uh, it was a matter of time, you know, they started getting their hands into it a little bit. Colombo's increasing wealth began to attract the attention of the police and the FBI. May 1966. Colombo was subpoenaed to stand as a witness for federal investigation on racketeering. He was set to appear before the grand jury. A federal grand jury is a unique one. It could go on for a year or better before finally a ruling is handed down. Uh, a DA might use uh, many of organized crime, many of uh, your criminals say uh, a grand jury is nothing but a tool of the DA. Well, basically what it is, is it's a hearing of the evidence to uh, a group of people and they vote on it to see whether you have a case. Now you have to have, go out and have, make the arrest and prove that case. But uh, it's an important tool and an investigative skill because it forces people to come in to appear and give testimony. And now you lock him into that testimony. Colombo could no longer hide in the shadows, but Colombo stuck to mob protocols and refused to testify, insisting he was just an honest businessman. Everybody's afraid of uh, what's gonna happen in a federal grand jury. Colombo was sentenced to 30 days in jail for refusing to answer questions about his financial affairs from a grand jury. The authorities intensified their research into organized crime in New York. In September, the FBI and the Queens District Attorney's Office made its first breakthrough, a massive bust at the La Stella restaurant. NYPD detective Joe Coffey was given a tip-off about the mafia meeting. La Stella was a restaurant on Queens Boulevard in Queens, right? And it was pretty famous and pretty well-to-do. A lot of good people went there for dinner. And they brought in the mob chiefs from all over the country again. And they uh, all sat down and broke bread and went over their operations. And uh, we were able to get information from an informant that they were all there and we raided the place. Ironically, one of the funny things about that, one of the mobsters we grabbed had $10,000 stashed in his shoes. It heralded the start of a new pushback against the mob and especially against the New York families. Colombo, as a family head, was now on law enforcement's radar. Colombo soon realized what attracted the FBI and police to him was his wealth when he didn't have any visible source of income. With time to kill in prison, Colombo devised a perfect solution. He would become the ordinary working Joe he was claiming to be. He would insist that all family members hold down real jobs to maintain a facade of legality. They're not working legitimate jobs. They're not even going near a legitimate job. A legitimate job is for the ordinary people, and they were not ordinary people. 
Colombo led by example. He worked as a salesman at Cantalupa Realty on 86th Street in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. In reality, of course, he continued conducting his mafia business at the office. But now, when pressed by the authorities, he could explain his income and his lifestyle. And what a lifestyle it was. Joey liked to dress like the biggest actors. So it was very important about where he bought his shirts, where he had his shoes made. And believe me, he did. He had everything made. Everything was tailored. He wanted to be on their equal. When he met with uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, uh, he knew they dressed meticulously, had great clothes, and he wanted to be right there, right alongside them. And he didn't want to look like a schlep. He wanted to be dressed to kill, just like them. The money flooded in from his numerous rackets, and Colombo was starting to get carried away with his status. He enjoyed the good life in Manhattan, becoming increasingly flamboyant and extravagant. Adorned in expensive jewelry and suits, Colombo cruised around in the city in flashy Cadillacs. The new bulls like Colombo, Colombo was the start of the, it was the start of the Gotti era where there would be nightclub and running around with pinky rings and a good-looking blonde in their arm and a whole routine. Colombo was the type of guy, he was the transition from the old world to the new world when it comes to the mafia. He was the first guy who became flamboyant, i.e. the Italian-American Civil Rights League. That was unbelievably frowned upon by the old line mobsters. Most mobsters, regardless of their stature, love the flashy cars and the flashy women and the attire. I call it the mafia costume, with the gold chains and the pinky rings and the pointed shoes. We used to call them roach killers, because you can kill a roach in the corner with their shoes. In the extravagance, Colombo was also becoming careless. He had reignited attention from the FBI and the income tax authorities. $35,000 a year salary and tailor-made suits and shirts did not add up. Once again, the FBI had their sights on Colombo. On April 23, 1970, Colombo's son, Joe Jr., was arrested for melting down silver coins to extract precious metals. Colombo saw this as a trumped-up charge designed to get at him, and it was the final straw. Colombo devised a radical solution to stop the FBI. Across America, protests among civil rights groups were flourishing. Colombo decided to jump on the bandwagon as a way to fend off the FBI from his affairs. He in effect, he declared war on the FBI. The former hitman confidently announced to the city that Italian-Americans were unfairly discriminated against by the United States. And he exploited the growing unrest in the Italian-American community of the time claimed that Italians were being discriminated against. Uh, there was some truth in that. At that particular time, you found very few Italian names in corporate executive suites outside of the automobile industry. You found very few Italian names on Wall Street in law or banking firms. And a lot of Italian Americans, and, and the great bulk of Italian, the overwhelming number of Italian Americans, we're not involved in any kind of organized crime or any other kind of crime. And sometimes that set them back. And there were a lot of jokes on television about Italians. Uh, some people still object to the Soprano, uh, Soprano and to the uh, Jersey Shore series as demeaning to, to Italians. But 
In any event, uh, a lot of people felt that the Italians were discriminated against. And he started in a way that nobody could have foreseen. So he began picketing FBI headquarters, which was then on the Upper East Side. And he decided to proclaim himself a civil rights leader because that was fashionable at the time. So Colombo, with the remnants of the old Profaci family, uh, allies of the Bonanno family, they were intermarried and all that, be organized a giant civil rights demonstration here in New York that was very successful. Drew huge crowds uh, up to Columbus Circle. And then he had a black tie dinner at Madison Square Garden where Frank Sinatra entertained. And that was very successful. And he passed the word at the time he had his uh, first rally that all the, biz all the, the uh, businesses should close and, and uh, give money to the rally or attend the rally. Colombo had achieved the unthinkable. A known mafioso had drawn a large crowd to picket the FBI in New York, the very heart of law enforcement. I think he felt that if the timing were right and he could get Italians, Americans on their side and their pressure could be put on the FBI, because it was to some extent a political institution at the time, um, he could stop them from moving ahead. And he took a shot. Um, and for a while, it looked like it was brilliant. Uh, he might have succeeded. Um, and then, of course, it was a total and abject failure. But uh, as he began it, it wasn't quite clear um, which side of the brilliance line he was on. Colombo's movement had just begun. Day after day, crowds of demonstrators harassed FBI agents coming and going. NYPD detective Joe Coffey was on site, gathering intel. We'd be out there taking pictures of them to see who's who and who was, uh, what stature they were, what leadership uh, role they played in the family. Uh, the mafia uh, people who had respect for somebody would come up and kiss them on both cheeks. You knew the guy, you know, the kisser was an underling to the being kissed. Uh, I mean, we did it for intelligence purposes. It was very productive. We would find uh, people that had just been made we didn't know about, would find that out from our observations. And in fact, they did us a favor by picketing all the time because they gave us more intelligence than, than we would have gotten. But Colombo was, uh, was rarely on the scene. He would show up once in a while, rally the troops and leave. And he, he used all his underlings, and we used to call them MOOCs, M-O-O-K-S, to stand out there and do the picketing for him. As the crowds grew, media attention followed. Colombo reveled in it. After several days of picketing, Joe Colombo told crowds and the press that there was a conspiracy in the United States against every Italian-American. This direct challenge of authority was unheard of in mafia circles, and it was in drastic contrast to Colombo's silence at the grand jury years before. Mafia men used to speaking in hushed tones were unsettled. Colombo had become a walking target for the FBI and the Mafia. Why go to war? Why declare war on law enforcement? You're going to have enough trouble with them as it is. Why make it personal? In the next episode... Colombo's actions caused disquiet among the highest circles of the Mafia about the intensifying scrutiny of law enforcement. I know a lot of them were very furious with him. 
There were some collisions there on the picket lines where they almost came to blows. Columbo assumed he was untouchable, on the crest of a wave, an immediate darling, and so he wouldn't back down. Joe Colombo was, like all of them, an egotist, a thug. He had, uh, he fashioned himself as a businessman, which he wasn't. He was an out-and-out thug, and uh, he was a street rat, and he had no class. His family had no class. But his enemies inside the mob were stirring, and an old adversary from his early days was waiting in the wings. Gallo and Colombo never got along because Colombo didn't trust Gallo. Gallo was jealous of Colombo. Gallo wanted to be the boss of the family. Of course, he couldn't be because Colombo was. And as a result of that, they uh, had a terrific conflict. Mafia is an audio boom and world media rights co-production hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by audio booms Rachel Jacobs, Casey Georgie, Blair Payton, and Karen Bevan, and by Pascal Hughes for world media rights. We had additional production help from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabingwa and James Tyndale. David McNabb is the series' creative director. And the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Best Fiends for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. <laughs> 